It's Rick Jones, the captain of Fishbait Marketing, coming back to you from the bridge. You know, in spite of this continuing pandemic, we still all need to create revenues for our businesses. You know, I have this very bad habit. Uh, I like to eat, usually on average around three times a day. And to do that, it takes resources like money. So today's show is going to be about part one of how to create more revenues. My special guest is Mark Riggs, longtime public relations specialist whose agency in Charlotte, North Carolina, TPC Growth, now helps other agencies grow their revenues. But his specialty is not new from new business, but rather new from existing clients. And I can't wait to dive into this with Mark. We'll also get back up on the soapbox and eat something really yummy on the road with Rick. So sit back. We know we have some choppy seas right now, but you're safe and sound from the bridge. In basketball, shooting makes up for a multitude of sins. (laughs) I used to say, you know, uh, if you can shoot the basketball, you're going to probably play a little bit, uh, you know, and, and shooting in business is sales. You know, sales does that in business because revenues are the most essential part of a business. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Business Tithe. This book talks about the need for businesses to give something back to their communities. But guess what? <laughs> Only profitable businesses can actually give back. And profitable businesses depend on revenues. Like most everything in business and life, you have to be intentional about growing revenues. Did you know that studies have shown that 80% of the people who set goals and write them down and read them daily actually achieve those goals? That's a pretty amazing statistic. And so if you're going to build revenues, you've got to have goals for your revenues. Hey, let's start today, though, with a little fun. You've heard of the bucket list, you know, those things you want to do in your life before you kick the bucket. Do you have a list out there? I have a long list of things I still want to do in my life and in my business career, including dishes I want to eat, places I want to travel, and new things I want to learn and experience. I even hope to finish both a novel and a musical, and I've actually started writing both of those. I review my bucket list annually to decide which items I want to check off in the coming year. Leisure travel is very important to me, and obviously I have not been able to travel during this time. In fact, I had booked 13 different trips in 2020, of which I only took one. Uh, And so I'm going to have to adjust my bucket list coming out of the coronavirus. Uh, As of this uh, day, I've actually been to 49 of the 50 states. The one I haven't been to is North Dakota. I've never been to North Dakota. I'm a little afraid to go because I'm afraid if I get there, God may say I'm done. So I've instructed Charlotte on my deathbed to airlift me to North Dakota uh, so that I can finish that bucket list. I've also been to 41 different countries, but I still have a long, and I mean a long list of places I still want to go. And in fact, 
until this year with all this craziness, I actually had a detailed plan for where I wanted to go and when I wanted to go over the next 10 years. I've got two grand boys that live in England, and I have a list of places I want to take them and things I want to do with them, both individually and together. I'm also very intentional each year of writing down projects I want to do in my home and in my garden, new places I want to eat, things I want to learn to cook. So I don't call myself not only a planner, I think I'm more of a squeezer. I'm someone who squeezes everything he can get out of life, everything that life has to offer. And you know what? It seems the more things I write down that I want to do, the more things I actually get done. Now, I got to be honest with you. I like money. I like making money because I really like spending money. And I like to spend on things that please me, my family, and my friends. And I like having resources to help other people. And so I urge you to start today by sitting down and making up your own bucket list. But now let's jump back into goals for revenues. What are you going to do to help your business? Each December, I sit down and reflect on the successes and accomplishments of the previous year. And I also make a list of things we wanted to accomplish that did not happen as we had planned. And then I start listing my revenue goals for the upcoming year. I am very intentional on what I feel we can accomplish each year, and I write down all of our goals, no matter how small. We start with financial goals. We we have to plan to make a profit again in order to meet our expense obligations. We have to plan for cash flow as part of our financial goals. Part of our goals are what we call retention-based goals, current business lines, current products, and current customers that we intend to keep. But part of our goals are new products or lines of business we intend to launch, new customers we intend to pursue, and new expertise we intend to acquire. We have goals for top-line growth, bottom-line profitability, and market share gains. We have goals for current clients. We have goals for our current staff. We have goals for new staff in terms of training and promotions, but all are goals leading towards revenues. We have goals for marketing and communications. We have goals for annual meetings and how we celebrate. All of these are important But we also do something that really became important this year. We do a thing called scenario planning. If this happens, then we'll do that. In good times, we may be add staff or equipment. In bad times, we may have to make some personnel cuts or other budget-reducing activities. But I have to admit that I did not pre-plan for anything like COVID-19. But we had done something significant that ended up helping us. Several years ago, I started a retirement program called a SEP, a Simplified Employee Pension Program, and that allows us to put in tax-deferred dollars into each of our associates' retirement accounts. Now, we did this. Number one, it helped me shelter a lot of income but it also gave our staff a head start on some retirement funds. 
But once the coronavirus came around, our business completely stopped and we had zero income coming in. Thankfully, we had those SEP funds available for each of our associates to use. It reminds me of the Bible story where Joseph persuaded the Pharaoh in Egypt to store up grain in the good times before the drought came years later. Well, I had not intended on any drought years, but we were fortunately ready when this drought came. And I finally learned the hard way. They always come. So far, we've been fortunate to not have to use any of the SEP money. We got PPP money. We got a small business loan. But here's what I know. We can still use that amount of money for our staff. And that's good news for actually surviving in this environment. If you want specific outcomes, you'll need to develop specific goals for all phases of your business. Annual goals are like a roadmap, all the places you want to go and how to get there. But many things can change. Don't we know that this year? And that's why you have to break down your annual goals into pieces. Firstly, you break them down into quarterly goals. I like to do this one month before the quarter begins. Then you can start this at any time during the year. Then I do monthly goals, followed by weekly goals and ultimately daily goals. It's important to list daily goals before you develop your daily to-do list to make sure you're doing the right things to move your business along. Never confuse activity with achievement. And it's important to know that you're doing the right things that help you generate revenues. I also write down, I've told you this before, I write down my reward for the day. My old boss at Georgia Tech, Dr. Homer Rice, got me in this habit. Each day I select one thing I will do for myself or for someone else that serves as my reward for the day. It could be a phone call to an old friend. It could be a long walk with my dog or watching something on television or Netflix or, uh, you know, maybe a special dinner with my wife. At the end of the year... I can look back and see 365 rewards. After all, life is why we work. And reviewing all of those daily rewards keeps us both balanced and motivated. Once you've created and most importantly written down all of your annual, quarterly, monthly, weekly, and daily goals, then you can go deeper into specific elements of these goals. And that's what we'll do next week from the bridge. My guest today is Mark Riggs. Mark owns a unique agencies whose clients are actually other agencies, and he helps them grow their revenues. Mark is a longtime public relations consultant who worked for many years at one of my favorite PR agencies, Taylor. Let's welcome Mark to the bridge. Mark, greetings from Charleston. Uh, it's a nasty morning here with the tropical storm moving through, but I know you're going to bring us a little sunshine today. I'm trying. The, the sun is out here in Charlotte, and uh, I was just on the coast this week, so my, my family's on the coast of North Carolina, so they're kind of batting down the hatches this, as well, so I hope you guys stay safe. Yeah, we, we started this thing about you know trying to reason with hurricane season. It's... Uh, it's just that time of year that we all got to be uh, on guard. Now, I know you went – I want to talk a little bit about your background, but I know you went first to UNC uh, Wilmington. 
So I did. You, you, I did. you went to you went to college at the beach, which is uh, not a bad thing to do. And uh, I went. I did. I did. And then, and then, did you go right to graduate school right after that, or did you work for a little while? I did not. I worked for a little while. You know, what's interesting is I had every intention of going to law school. That was that was my plan. And my last semester in college, I was I come to come to find out I was one credit or one class short of a minor in communications. So I my senior year, I took an intro to PR class and there was a gentleman who had retired from Fleischman Hillard or from Omnicom's a number of big agency experiences. But he had retired in Wilmington, was teaching a PR class. And so I took this intro to PR class. And it kind of set me on fire, man. It was really kind of the first time I sat in a class and was like, man, I want to do that. You know, how do, how do I figure out how to do that? And, um, you know, lo and behold, I happened to be back to my hometown uh, near Jacksonville, North Carolina. I grew up in a little town, Ripslands, North Carolina. And I happened to be back in, in town, and I was in a drugstore. And I bounced into a uh, the, the sports editor there. And he remembered me from playing ball in high school and you know what happened to you? That type of thing. What's what's next? And I was like, you know, I was told a great place to start if you don't have any experience. Because again, I had no experience. I had just taken this class. Was you know, a great place to start was in a newsroom. And so, um, he asked, you know, would I be interested in coming in and interviewing for a job? And so I did. And uh, you know, the the funny thing, Rick. Now you know it's funny now. It wasn't funny then. But um, they asked me, you know, can you bring in some writing samples? And I'd never taken a journalism class. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. I've got some examples. <laughs> so, so I took in some old English lit papers that I had written. And, uh, you know, I met – you were talking about like a, you know, a small, you know, 30,000, 40,000 daily at the time. And I went and met with him, and I met with the, uh, the editor. And they, you know, they looked at my papers, and they kept very straight professional faces. I'm sure they had a great laugh after I left. But, you know, they called me up and said, listen, you know, we can't offer you a job because we don't you don't have any experience. Uh, but it's obvious you can string a sentence together. Would you be interested in an internship? And so that's what I did. And so I took an internship. And uh, three years later, I was assistant sports editor and uh, youngest syndicated columnist in North Carolina. And I was enjoying that. But at the same time, being a young person working in a newsroom, it takes you out of life's loop. You know, everybody's going out at night and I'm having to work nights and weekends. So I did. I worked for about three years, and I left there and went back to grad school at NC State. Um, and they had just started a sports management program there, so that's that's what I did. I went to I worked for three years, and I went to grad school. You know, uh, one of my mentors is a guy named Bob Cohn, and and he started an agency called Cohn and Wolf, a uh, very oh, yeah. successful yeah. PR firm. And I worked for Bob. At one time, he that's how he started. Now, he'd gone to the University of Alabama and started in a newsroom. Um, and, and so, you know, candidly in the PR business of that era, that was probably a pretty good place to start. Um, and but, I'm, I'm telling you, it, you know, listen, it taught me resourcefulness. It taught me to be, you know, a little self-sufficient. Um, you know, I see so many young people today, um, or over the last 20 years that, you know, they come out of the J school at you know, pick a university and, um, cause they've had a couple of classes, you know, they're, they think they're ready to roll, but the practicality of it, I, you know, I got more of an education in that newsroom that I got in any classroom and, uh, it's behooved me all the way through. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I had done a similar path and that I had, uh, got out of uh, undergraduate school and became a teacher and a coach and then ultimately became a college coach. But by the time hmm. I went back to graduate school in, in sports management, 
I had questions. I mean, you know, I, I tell young people, don't go directly to law school. Don't go directly to, you know, I guess medical school is a different animal, but law school sure, or sure. go get your MBA or go get a master's in sports management. No, 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 no. Go out and work and find out what questions you want answered next. That's uh, a great point. And, and I think you probably did that at NC State. So you get out with that degree and then what happened? Well, you know, at the time, um, uh, Jim Goodman, who, you know, runs uh, WRAL and owns that capital, capital broadcasting over in Raleigh, and I think they own some stations over here in Charlotte. He was leading a bid to try to bring the Pan Am games to North Carolina. And so, you know, I was so far behind. You know, I was, I'm older at this point. And uh, so I volunteered. You know, that's another thing, too, that that's so many, you know, lots of times now you get paid for your internship. In fact, it might even be mandatory. I'm not sure, but you know, I volunteered for the bid committee and, uh, long story short, I ended up becoming the assistant to the president of the bid, this woman named Winky LaForce and Winky kind of took me under her wing and, and, uh, worked in that, on that bid, trying to bring the Pan Am games to the Raleigh Durham area. And, um, that we, we lost, we lost the bid. And, you know, I learned a lot about the politics of <laughs> the USOC and the voting members and, um, when, when we lost that bid, Rick French, who owns French West Vaughn over in Raleigh, the PR firm was on the board and uh, I shared my resume around and he saw that I had been a reporter and had some writing experience. So he offered me a job at his PR agency and, um, you know, I ended up working there for six years and it was a tre- tremendous education. Um, I worked on the CIAA basketball tournament, which, you know, yep. uh, uh, we, we took that thing from a very small, regional thing to a big national event uh, i had the opportunity to be a part of the pr team during the expansion of the acc uh, which was a tremendous education you know sitting sitting in those rooms and hearing the conversations around you know the different universities who were who wanted to come in or who were going to be invited in and why they were and why they weren't all the kind of good stuff so um you know left there and and then after six years and went to uh ipg mullen low and got a just a, was there for almost two years and got a tremendous education on brand, you know. So I went from a very tactical PR mindset to now I'm looking. I'm working at an ad agency, and you're looking at it everything from a from an integrated approach. And PR was you know the last thing they thought about because uh, everything was pushed with advertising. But it was really the education and branding and brand planning that I got. And then after a couple of years, you know, there. Um, a former colleague of mine called me up and said, listen, I'm at this little PR agency called Allen Taylor Communications. Uh, we're going through a rebranding. We're going to be Taylor. And, um, you know, a lot of it's driven by sports and lifestyle and entertainment. I think you would love it here. And uh, so I, at the time, I, my wife was pregnant with our first child. And um, she's originally from Charlotte. So we were trying to get back close to family. And they had an office here in Charlotte. And uh, I met with Tony Signori and, and Brett Jukes, who's down with, you know, the author blank family businesses down in Atlanta, but I uh, was with NASCAR there for a while. But um, they they kind of took me in and um, gave me an opportunity. And, and when I joined that place, it was a five million dollar agency. And when I left, it was a twenty two million dollar agency. So uh, and, and not because of me, I, I think I was a you know cog in the wheel, but um, certainly the education I got. And building an agency, seeing how an agency grows, uh, making smart decisions, uh, being very true to your mission, 
And, um, you know, they only have 15 clients by design. And, um, but I got a tremendous education there and was there for about 10 years, uh, left as an executive vice president, joined MWW out of New York. Um, but I still lived in Charlotte and I commuted back and forth for about a year and a half. And it, it got to be tough, uh, doing that because every time I saw my kids, they were bigger and I was missing so much. But really, that experience was the impetus for what I'm doing now. Well, it's you know, interesting. It's, you have an interesting roadmap. I think you have a roadmap, which I call worth emulating. You know, I'll get, like you probably do, I get resumes all the time from people. And they'll, sure. and they'll say, I have 10 years of experience. And I'll look at it and go, you know, you really have one year of experience repeated 10 times. And, and, and that's not a good place to be. But if you think about your journey, I mean, you know, you started – on the what I call the receiving end of the PR industry, which is the newspaper business that's going to ultimately yep. do things. Then you, you know, you migrate, you know, there to really understanding kind of how do you leverage sports properties with communications that leads you to a PR firm, that leads you to an ad agency, that leads you to another PR firm, especially a PR yep. firm like Taylor that was re-engineering. I, I, I go way back with Alan. Um, yeah. you know, it's I've never had the pleasure of meeting him actually. You know, he, 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 he remains a friend. Uh, he was a pioneer. I mean, he created sports PR. He, he's a guy he that's never gotten enough credit. Um, he, he was a publicist largely in the boxing industry and, and, you know, ended up, you know, building quite an agency. We crossed paths when we, my little agency that nobody had ever heard of won the MasterCard World Cup business and kind of shocked mm. the world. And and Alan Taylor Communications was the PR um, MasterCard. Uh, for MasterCard at the time. And the account right. executive on that piece of business was a young man named Tony Signori. And, 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 and yeah, and so, you know, and, and, and what I liked about, again, uh, not to, to, to digress, but what I liked about Tony was when Alan left, and and, and and Alan did something I thought was very commendable. He, he ended up selling the agency back to his staff instead of, you know, selling to a holding company. or I mean, he figured out a way to do some kind of an ESOP that worked well for him. Yep. But Tony said, I think there's another model. I got a vision. He and did. he, and he yeah. did. He had this great vision, and that vision really was what you've just talked about, and it's going to lead us to what we're going to really spend time talking about, which is I only want a few clients. I want, you know, at one time I think Alan, Alan and I loved Alan, but, you know, the, the, the laughter about Alan telling communications was if it, if it moved, he pitched it. And if, it, and if he didn't move, he kicked it till it moved and he pitched it, <laughs> you know. And so, I, you know, I, I think they were a mile wide and an inch deep uh, in terms of billings. And I, I think Tony had a vision. And then you come there and buy into the vision. No doubt. And you take a, a client like Allstate, and let's, let's spend a little time talking about them. Um, yeah. And, you know, you take Allstate and you grow their billings. Yeah, you know, and that was kind of the genesis for the whole thing. I, I had been a part of teams that had grown business. Um, and like you said, Tony and his partners, you know, at the time, there were 10 of them um, that, that Mr. Taylor had sold the, sold the business to. And, and Tony was at the tip of that spear. And he had this vision of being like the Bain or McKenzie of the PR business. You know, we for so long, we'd gotten paid for neck down. He wanted to get paid for neck up, right? And uh, so... <clears throat> 
we we had an opportunity with Allstate through um, I, I think it was uh, Joe Tripodi who yep. who, who yeah, used to be a client. Joe had been at Mastercard exactly that's right yep that's and how he, it was he, yep he went to Allstate and then I think later on to Coke and some other things but he and Tony were very close and um, they had an activation they had taken on the sponsorship of the Allstate 400 at the Brickyard and we had a history in in racing. And uh, it's really funny. I'm from North Carolina, but what you what I know about NASCAR and racing, you could probably put in about the tip of a pen. Um, <laughs> which is funny because my first assignment when I got there, they're like, "What do you know about racing?" I'm like, "Not a whole lot." They're like, "Well, good. You're in charge of the 50th running of the Daytona 500." I'm like, "Oh, super. That's great." <laughs> um, which went <laughs> which went well, uh, but that's a story for another day. Um, but so for the Allstate thing, we we did we were, we were activating the sponsorship around the Allstate 400. And a, a guy that I ended up becoming very close with and still a good friend of mine to this day, Bates Granger, was kind of leading that. And uh, I came on board and Brett Jukes came to me and said, you know, what do you, you know, in addition to the racing, what do you know about college football? And I said a little bit, you know, and uh, meanwhile, I was salivating. I'm like, this is what I've been waiting for right here. I, I want to work on big properties with big brands. And so, you know, they had the Allstate Nets, and we were asked to leverage an advertising campaign with uh, Bergwood, the character who would, you know, couldn't kick. He was supposed to be a kicker, but couldn't kick. So, you know, Bates ran the racing. I ran the college football. And, you know, I've always had a couple of philosophies. You know, you solve, you don't sell. You know, if you're solving a client's problems, the business will take care of itself. And, you know, good was, you know, like Tony used to say, and I learned this from him, so I don't, I'm going to steal his words, but, you know, good gets you fired, you know, great will get you more work, right? Um, so it was the idea of doing great work and, you know, lo and behold, we, we did a great job. Next thing you know, it's, what do you know about Olympics? What do you know about motorcycles? What do you know about the Hispanic community? And we just kept, you know, not only... Uh, doing great work, but we just try to stay out in front of them. And I think that was one of the things Pam Hollander at Allstate always said about us is we were always kind of a step ahead of her. Um, but, you know, the true value of that client for me was the fact that we worked with other agencies. You know, we worked with Octagon and IMG at the time and their ad agency, Leo Burnett and Starcom, who did the media buying. And before, you know, in the beginning, it was kind of, we were the new kid on the block. All those other agencies had been there. And, you know, we kind of had to find our place. But once we did, you know, they ended up calling us the five families. You had five agencies who were all owned by different entities, but we worked very, very well together. And that, again, was another piece that set me up for doing what we're doing now because it was this integrated approach. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of Pam's. Um, yeah, she's great. You know, I mean, she's, she's, just, great. she's just the person that said, this is how we're going to play. You, you're not going to be in, age, in individual agencies. You're going to be a part of Team Allstate, and everybody's going to play together. And, of course, during that era, I was fortunate enough to sell Allstate a bunch of stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I brought the good the, the, the AFCA Good Works team, oh, yeah. you know, to them. And in fact, it's a funny story. Um, Mike Murray at the time at IMG really liked it, and and we took yep. it in, and, and and they said no. And and then I came in the next year because I knew it was perfect for them, and they said no again. And then a guy named Patrick Pierce came in, and, and, and Patrick found my proposal in his files. 
the first day he was on the job. And he he called and said, I know this isn't still available. And I said, Patrick, it is available because it was perfect for you, and I haven't tried to sell it for anybody else. And and that's turned out to be really good. And then when they became an NCA corporate partner, we just replicated that program with good works teams for the NABC and the WBCA. Right. And, and so it that's was, right. you know, it was, it was really fun. Uh, we worked on all that. Yeah. We worked on, you know, it's funny. You, you talk about the AFCA, um, Patrick, this is funny, Rick, cause we worked together and didn't really even know it, but Patrick came to us and, you know, we're not a sponsorship evaluation agency, but it was, you know, what could you guys do with this? We've said no to it a couple of times. And, you know, there was not a lot of um, uh, support for it, quite honestly, in the beginning. But we looked at it and said, you know, talking with Mike Murray, like you said, we looked at it and said, hey, listen, here's an opportunity. Because I, if I remember correctly, all states broken up into 18 different regions around the country. I think it's 18. And some of those are very rural places. You know, if you look at, you know, the Dakotas and things like that. And we looked at it and said, you know what? If you're going to go all the way down to Division three, three schools, even NAIA schools, what a great opportunity to get into some of these markets that we traditionally wouldn't get into and be able not only to tell the brand story, but push the good hands and all this, you know, all the messaging and that sort of stuff. And so I, I, I'd like to think that, you know, when Bates and I looked at that and said, here's an opportunity to really get into these other markets – that was kind of the impetus of getting that over the hump because they're like, yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, how many schools did you, you've never heard of had guys on the, that good, you know, good hands team uh, or the ASCA good works team, excuse me. And that allowed us to go into markets. Like I said, that we typically wouldn't go into And man. We just really cleaned up from a PR perspective. So well, we laughed. I, I didn't my, realize. My, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. We, we were the ones that brought that. And it's interesting. My wife and I, we would go to a lot of the events, you know, we would go to the sugar bowl to the events or we would go yeah. to the, you know, and my wife would say, I'm such a failure. I mean, here's this 19 year old with a foundation, you know, a bone marrow transplant foundation as a sophomore. It, would, yeah. <laughs> it, put, it puts your uh, lack of accomplishments in perspective for sure. I always felt the same way. I'm like, gosh, these kids, man, I could, I could barely find my way to class when I was in college. And these kids got it, you know, they're taking the world by the tail. But, but yeah, I didn't realize that was uh, you guys that had brought that to the table. And then, of course, like you said, we replicated that with NCAA and got in all those championships and developed a program for the College World Series. And um, so, anyway, that was just one that was kind of the uh, the blueprint for building business, you know. And we, and we uh, you know, I won't share Taylor's business, but we did very well with Allstate. And, um, we got it to the point where we didn't have to push it anymore because we were doing great work. If there was an assignment, you know, Pam will call and say, you're, you know, you're our agency, but we were never agency of record 10 yeah. years, never yeah. agency of record. And so it was always, you know, there was, there was those repeat pieces of business. Like you said, you know, the, you knew the, the you knew the sugar bowl was going to come around every year. You knew once they signed the deal with the NCAA, you're going to have the final four and some soccer and things like that. But the the other half of it, you had to get in there and find every year, you know. And, and my my leaders at my agency, um, you know, they just saw the numbers. They wanted to, you know, how do I get back to that number or even above it every year? 
And uh, that kind of developed the approach that, that uh, we use at TPC Growth now. Well, it's interesting that um, you're really in the agency business only as good as your last project. Man, I'm telling you. And, and, and the fact that you're not an agency of record with a long, you know, standing, you know, contract forces you, I think, to just consistently do great work. So you've got your own shop now, TPC Growth, yep. and, 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 it, and it's got this unique twist yeah. And this twist is helping other agencies. Tell me a little bit about this. Yeah. Well, you know, it, I knew I had a knack for growing business. And um, six different times in my career, I've been a part of teams that grew. Um, I happen to be maybe the account lead, but I certainly don't do it by myself. Um, grew business from, you know, a small fledgling account until a multi million dollar account. And, when you know I left Taylor and had the opportunity to run new business globally at MWW, it really wasn't a situation where I had to go out and find new things. It was winning the RFPs and how you you know win business. Um, and then <clears throat> at the end of my run there, you know I had 17 RFPs on my desk. So anybody in the agency business, I mean, you hear the number 17 RFPs, you just like, you know, how do you even prioritize and tackle that? And that was, you know, a good problem to have. But I also looked around the agency, which was a pretty good size, you know, mid-sized independent agency. And I said, man, if we just grew all these accounts by 10%, if you just grew them all by 10%, you know, you would easily blow our new business goal right out of the water, you know? And taking a focus of, you know, you've already got the relationships, you've already done the hard part, you've won the business, and um, it, you're set up for that sort of thing. And so uh, when I when I left MWW, um, I got a call from a former Taylor colleague who's now the CFO of one of the bigger uh, publicly held holding companies. And she said, listen, you know, our agencies across the board are having some trouble with organic growth, and I know you've got a history there would you mind coming in and talking to our leadership about just some philosophies and best practices? I'm like, absolutely. We'd love the opportunity. So I did a flip to New York and, and met with that, that group of people. And uh, certainly I try to, you know, in our business now I'm very sensitive to talk about the agencies we work with because a lot of those agencies don't want <laughs> others to know they're tapping into uh, a re- outside resource like us. But, um, but I sat down and, and met with the holding company uh, personnel and we walked through some things and I, got introduced to a CEO at one of their bigger multinational firms. And we started talking about, you know, some of the philosophies around organic growth. And uh, I started sharing my point of view. And I was like, listen, just imagine if all the money and the dollars and the resources you put into new business chasing things, what if you change the paradigm and you've invested that money or those resources at that time into the business you already have? You know, when Rick, Rick, when we were coming along, it was a sexy thing to be in that that room that was developing a new pitch. You know, how do I get in that room? I want to be a part of that team. You know, the guy over here in the corner, or the gal over here in the corner who was growing business, you know, were just steady Eddie. Uh, that wasn't the sexy thing, but that's the thing that pays the bills and really can create margins for an agency. So went up and met with them, and then this agency leader and I sat down and we developed a program called Accelerator. And the idea was to take accounts that were either stagnant, uh, they thought had high potential. And this is the key part, had young leadership on the accounts, had young leadership on the accounts, and how could we grow them? And so we identified eight accounts, and after a quarter, we had uncovered about $900,000 in organic opportunities. And they were like, we'll take some more of that. 
And so I just kind of was signing up quarter after quarter with this agency. And at one point I went to the CEO and said, listen, this is not a competitive thing. I'm not helping you pitch against another agency. I'm helping you grow what you've already won. I said, would you care if I took this and, and created a consultancy out of it? He told me to go for it. And I did. And it's really funny because you and I talked a couple of years ago when I first left MWW. And I, you know, I think I told you, I said, man, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do next. And I was consulting with a couple of clients from a PR perspective. And you said, I'll give it about a year and it'll crystallize for you. And man, were you right? And, you know, now we, we've got this thing and I've, I've brought on a partner, Britt Carter, who actually was one of my bosses at French Forest Vaughn 20 years ago. Um, he spent about 17 years with Fleischman Hillard. He developed that here in the Carolinas. And, you know, now we're, we're building this business. We solely consult with agencies on organic growth. So how can we go in and help you grow at the account level in order to grow at the enterprise level? And a byproduct of that, the big byproduct of that has been changing the mindset of agencies and changing the mindsets of account leadership. Um, because, you know, my joke is uh, we're a society of liberal arts majors. You know, nobody knows how to rub two nickels together. So you get into this business because you can you can write, you're creative, you're strategic. For all those reasons, you want to do the work. But guess what? We're in business, too. We're here to make money. And I think that gets lost on a lot of the junior staff because it's like, you know, I remember being at Mullen and being told, even as a VP, just do what you do. Don't worry about the finances. Just do what you do. And I'm like, man, if I understood better how we make money, I could help you make more money. And that's one of the – I haven't done a lot of smart things, but one of the smartest things I ever did was go to Rick French and say, how do we as an agency make money as an AE? I went to him. I was like, I don't, you know, I don't understand. Like I, I'm doing, I'm being asked to move from one group to another group. I'm being asked to do all these things and that's fine. But I'm kind of a purpose driven person. I was like, I need to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And when he explained, you know, from a 30 foot, you know, 30,000 foot level to an AE at the time, um, he explained to me how we made money and I got it. And um, that has been kind of the genesis behind all this, but that, that was the notion is, all right, I've got a piece of business. I've won it. How do I grow it? And, um, it's also the idea from an account management perspective of unlearning what you think you already know, because we're all taught by osmosis. You know, you know it's, it, what, yeah, it is interesting. I, I find that so many agencies, but more importantly, so many agency people are like that butterfly in the meadow. You know, they can't wait to get to another flower. Um, yeah. you, you know, they're just jumping from flower to flower to flower. You know, Stephen Stills, you know, he recorded a song years ago that said, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. <laughs> love uh, the one you're and, with. and agencies right. tend to forget that. They're always chasing, you know, the next one. And, and I'm really intrigued by your tagline of liberating agencies from the RFP because I love the yeah. liberating piece. We're... You know, we're 17 years old, and we're actually doing an RFP. We're finishing an RFP today. In 17 years, this is the fourth one I've done. you got to be kidding me. No, four in that, 17 years. That's um, unbelievable. Yeah, because we just don't believe in that. Um, now, in, in, in the case of the business we're pitching now, we just think we're absolutely perfect. We're not perfect for every piece of business, but we're perfect for this one. Uh, and, and I can't tell you how many times I've said no to RFPs because I, I didn't, I didn't see the long-term 
you know, vision, the, the, mm-hmm. the corporate clients and the properties that we have, we've had for over a decade. And, and that's, you know, that we're obviously doing something right because yeah. we're, we're growing those businesses. So talk about, uh, you know, about how are you changing behavior? Because <laughs> that's the hard thing to do. How do, you, how do you get them to start focusing on what you, you, you is it really your system that, that allows you to do that? Now, it, you know, listen, I, I think there's a lot of great consultancies out there and some of them do some of what we do. Um, but, you know, from what I've been able to find, you know, we're one of the only consultancies, if not the only consultancy that completely focuses on organic growth. And, you know, the challenge is getting people to um, understand that, you know, everybody thinks they're good at organic growth. And then when you, you know, you point out a couple of things and you talk about some of the fundamentals and they like, and maybe I'm not that great at, <laughs> you know, and what the, what the possibilities are. But when you talk about how do we start, I typically tell this story um, of Ignaz Semmelweis. Do you know? You have any idea who Ignaz Semmelweis was? No. Okay. Well, back in the mid 1800s, he was um, uh, predated kind of a gynecologist. He he was a, a baby doctor. Okay. Right. And at the time, the infant mortality rate was just through the roof and babies were dying. Mothers were dying, et cetera. And they just couldn't really figure out why. Well, he had this theory that if you would wash your hands before you treated a patient, then there might be bacteria on your hands. That If you washed your hands, um, that might be a safer way to treat patients. And lo and behold, the mortality rate went down. More mothers were living. Babies were living. And because of Ignaz Semmelweis, we're all here, right? Um, because you know the, he's the guy who said you need to wash your hands before you treat patients. And I now, hope I hope the people that are listening today in this coronavirus pandemic realize that if you wash your hands, you might still be here too. That's so, right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just getting here; it's the it, preservation. Exactly. Uh, but my, the reason I tell that story, and I heard that story in a seminar years ago, and I wish I could remember the man's name who told it because I'd give him credit, but. The reason I tell that story is that seems like such a small shift, right? It doesn't seem like a big thing. Ignaz Semmelweis died in an insane asylum. His, his, his contemporaries thought he was nuts, right? So the idea of changing your approach to new business by just making this small move, it doesn't seem like it's such a big thing, but it's hard for people to get their heads wrapped around when they've done it the same way for so long. Right. And what we tell agencies that we work with and when we do speaking engagements and webinars and things of that nature is, you know, listen, there's no rule book. There's a code of ethics for sure, but there's no rule book. Who told us we had to do it this way? And so the idea is, you know, to unlearn and reframe your approach to new business. Now, we certainly believe in the RFP. We, you know, new business is going to be part of agency life forever. That is part of the equation. But again, it's the it's the deployment of your resources and the energy you put into it, and and I, it, it's the idea of getting people to see, you know, that we can grow accounts organically, and you know, for us, that's you know, you know, building relationships, nurturing those relationships. It's not rocket science, but you know, there's lots of times is you know the excuses we use when we either lose an account or you know things are going sideways. You know, the client constantly changed course and, and wouldn't stay with one strategy. Their their competition spent more money. 
Uh, they brought in a new marketing manager who, you know, hired his brother-in-law, whatever, or the client. You mean, you mean, you mean certainly it couldn't be me. <laughs> no, it could not be me. Yeah. When, when the excuses should be, we didn't listen carefully. We never clarified how we we're going to work together. You know, our internal screw-ups killed us. We didn't staff the work properly. We didn't budget the work properly. Quite honestly, it got stale and we took them for granted. Right? Those those are the real excuses. So when you can get somebody to understand that, you know, the reason your business is not growing is because of you. You're, you know, you, it's like you got it's like uh, having a, uh, um, you know, one of those anonymous meetings. You know, you've got to take some ownership and, and understand that it starts with you. And then the other thing we really get people to look at, you know, what really gets people's attention, Rick, is we do this exercise. And I would encourage every agency, it doesn't matter what kind of agency you are, um, because the fundamentals of account management are the same, regardless of the agency. But we do this exercise, we'll come in and and we, we started this originally, and the agency we were working with just wanted senior people in the room. Because, again, they wanted all the junior people just doing what they do. And I said, no, no, no. I think it's important you bring everybody from the a, AC all the way up to you know whoever's running the business into the room. I said, because lots of times you know, we're taught to bend over backwards for our clients. Just bend over backwards and give them what they ask for and give them what they need, et cetera to keep the business going and keep it, you know, hopefully going in the right direction. But what we innately do is we give it all away. We give so much away in our business. And so what we do, we call it organizing your giving is the idea of you come in, get on a whiteboard, chalkboard, whatever you have these days. And you write down everything you do for that client, everything you're scoped for, but every little favor you do for because that AE might be doing some things that you don't know that they're doing in the best interest of the business, doing little favors because that's what they've been taught to do. And not getting so, paid for it. Yeah. And not getting paid for it. So you write all those things down, and then we go back and we highlight, say, okay, now we're going to highlight all the things we get paid for. And that's when people's eyes bulge out of their head because typically what we found is about 75% of the stuff you get paid for. So you're giving away about a quarter of your service and your time. So I say, all right, well, the first thing before we can grow it's how do we get paid for the stuff we're already doing? How do we get paid for that? And I know you can't walk across the street to the client and say, hey, listen, I've been giving this to you for any number of years. Now you've got to pay me for it. You can't do that, right? But you can monetize and productize those things and either deploy them to other clients or if you've been working on that account for a while and you know the trends, you get out in front of them and you weave those things in. So you know, the first thing to do in terms of growing your business organically is getting paid for all the stuff you do instead of giving it away. And, you know, that's, that's kind of how we get going with people is you got to have a very honest conversation with yourself. You've got to examine what you're giving away and let's productize or monetize the things you are giving away. And let's, let's start there. Um, but what we end up doing is we, we work with all these account leaders. And for us, if we're working with account leaders, Three to six months, you shouldn't need us anymore because there's only so many tricks of the trade, right? And, and we've developed this library of tactics and strategies, about 150 tactics and strategies. And some of them are quick wins. Some of them are longer-term plays, um, but they're all aimed at growing business. And there's nothing slick about it. This, you're not pulling anything over on the client. You're solving their problems. You're helping. You know, you have to look at your agency. That client is making an investment in you. They're investing in their business. They need it to go well. 
right? And, you know, the best thing you can do is make sure they understand, well, I'm in business too. You know, we've got people to pay. I've got goals, et cetera. And the, the people who are scared to talk about money will not do well. You've got to be able to talk about the financial side of it. And for us, that is part of it, is saying, let's recognize we need to be financially savvy and be able to talk about those things comfortably. And, our, you know, our business will mature in a, in a much more productive way. So, yeah, unless you're, and, unless you're Walmart or Amazon, you don't want to be a commodity. And, no, and, and agencies have just commoditized their their billing so much, I think. That's the thing, man. And so for us, you know, you were asking us about, you know, is it approach or print? You know, there are some principles. There is a there is a TPC growth way to approach things. But because we don't do train the trainer, and what I mean by that, we don't come in and do a day-long training, get everybody fired up about something and walk away. We'll only do trainings if there is work to be done afterwards as a follow-up um, because when I was growing accounts as an account leader, it's because I was immersed in the business. I knew where all the bodies were buried. I knew all where all the warts were and that type of, type of thing. So you've got to get immersed in the business. And, um, you know, like you just said, we don't want to be vendors. We want to be treated as partners. But, you know, when you look at this pandemic, and that's a couple of things we've talked about on some other webinars is, you know, we want to be seen as partners. But how many times do you exude partnership to your client? You know, you, you want to be treated as one, but how many times are you exuding partnership? And this, for us, this COVID pandemic has been a, a, an incredible opportunity to exude that partnership. So whether your client turned off the budget, um, turned off the spigot, if you can't give them 48 hours a week anymore, can you give them an hour? Can you, can you help problem solve? Can you ask them what their strategic imperatives are beyond what your original assignment was? Did, tell us what three of your biggest problems are right now. Let us think about it for you. You know, it's the Johnny, I call it the Johnny Appleseed effect. You know, let's, right now is a great opportunity to be planting seeds. And, you know, we've seen in this pandemic, some of our clients um, have either won back business or have actually grown their business during the pandemic. Um, now, luckily, some of those businesses weren't in travel and tourism and that type of thing. One is, um, but uh, but a very large property in, in that in that business. But it's those sort of things that you have to take a very um, you know ABC type approach to, and you got to get immersed in it because it's, so it's not a cookie cutter approach. Well, this so, is a time for agencies to get better. It's a time for 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 agencies to bring ideas to clients, even in those what I call debilitated agent uh, uh, business lines like travel and tourism. Because when we come out of it, whoever's prepared the best is gonna is gonna grow the best. Uh, Mark, we have a lot of agency people that listen to the podcast, thankfully. So sure, sure. you've got a unique niche. What's the best way for them to um, to get in touch with you? Uh, well, they can visit our website, which is tpcgrowth.com. Uh, they can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, there's a TPC Growth page. You can certainly find me on LinkedIn. Um, or they could just give me a call. It's uh, 704-307-5255, and you can find that information on the website. But you know, any agency that we talk to, we, we will give them a free 30-minute consult um, because we, we believe in what we're doing. And so we want to put our money where our mouth is. And uh, if we show value and can help, you know, the business will take care of itself. So, 
Well, let me let me close by saying all to all but the agency folks out there. Listen, if you don't want to make any more money, don't call Mark. Uh, but if you do, <laughs> but if you do, uh, if you want to increase your revenues in a thoughtful, responsible, and sustainable way, uh, let me encourage you to talk to TPC Growth. Hey, pal, thanks a bunch for being with us today from the bridge. Man, I really appreciate it. It's always great to talk to you, Rick. I always get a lot out of it. Looking back, I seem to have been mostly negative from the old soapbox the last few weeks. And those that know me know I'm not a negative person. I'm actually the little boy who got up on Christmas morning looking for the pony in the pile of horse manure. Uh, So um, here's a positive view today from the soapbox. These are six little stories with lots of meanings. Once all of the villagers decided to pray for rain on the day of prayer, all the people gathered, but only one boy came with an umbrella. That is faith. When you throw babies in the air, they laugh because they know you will catch them. That is trust. Every night we go to bed without any assurance of being alive the next moment or the next morning, but we still set the alarms to wake up. That is hope. We plan big things for tomorrow in spite of zero knowledge of the future. That is confidence. We see the world suffering, but still we get married and have children. That is love. On an old man's shirt was written a sentence. I am not 80 years old. I am sweet 16 with 64 years of experience, and that is attitude. Have a happy day and live your life like these six stories, and remember, good friends are the rare jewels of life. Difficult to find and impossible to replace. And that's a positive view today from The Soapbox. I absolutely love fried chicken. My wife, Charlotte, makes wonderful fried chicken nuggets. But on this week's On the Road with Rick, let me tell you about a great fried chicken place in Mark Riggs' hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. It's Price's Chicken Coop. It's actually a takeout-only place with real-deal fried chicken. I mean crunchy, juicy, flavorful yard bird. Great sides like fries, coleslaw, and potato salad, plus wonderful hush puppies. All in a takeout box to eat in the car or somewhere else. The chicken's so good, I challenge you to leave the parking lot before you've started eating it. Now, it's a cash-only place, so you need to bring money with you. It's Price's Chicken Coop in Charlotte, North Carolina, on the road with Rick. I hoped we helped provide some value to you today from the bridge. Thanks to Mark Riggs for bringing some insightful thinking for getting more revenues. We'll see you out on the water next week with a very special show you won't want to miss. This is the captain signing off. 